Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and this week I will be reviewing the first three episodes of Spike TV's The Mist, adapted from Stephen King's novella The Mist, which was found in the pages of... Uh, the Skeleton Crew publication of of short stories and was later adapted into a feature film uh, from Frank Darabont starring uh, Tom Jane. <clears throat> and my reviews for The Mist, the, the novella, and the collection of short stories, Skeleton Crew, and uh, The Mist adaptation can be found in earlier entries of the Stephen King cast. So all you have to do is just head back um, and and find those episodes. So, guys, welcome back to uh, the Stephen King cast 2.0. As you know, I'm back on a regular basis. I am glad to be back. Last week, I reviewed Gwendy's Button Box, uh, and from social media, there was a lot of great feedback. There's a lot of people that were kind of on the fence of whether or not to, to go out and get Gwendy's Button Box because... Um, the price. So I had some I had some really good conversations with people. And just to just to clarify, I guess what I would say about Gwendy's Button Box is it was billed as the return to Castle Rock, and technically that is true. You are going back to Castle Rock, uh, and you are going back to Castle Rock because it's taking place during a time that we never really saw from Castle Rock before. But it really could take place in any town. I mean, it is not a celebration of Castle Rock. Um, so just temper your expectations when you go into it because it is a good, fun, short story. But if you are expecting this, this story that reveals the deepest, darkest secrets of Castle Rock and it takes you on a, a world tour of your favorite moments of Castle Rock history, that's not happening. It is a, it is a quiet, short story about one girl in one particular town and her interactions with the more famous Castle Rock characters, that is not what the story is about. So don't don't judge it for what the story is not. Judge it for what the story is. And I, I think Target is selling it for like $16. So you can just, it it is worth it. At the end of the day, it's worth it. It's a fun short story. It's a very quick summer read. I, I, and I think that there are enough surprises in there that you'll enjoy it. So if you are on the fence because either of price or you might have heard that it isn't this this grand return to Castle Rock, get that out of your head. Just go out, buy it, enjoy it. I, I guarantee that, that you'll like it. So guys, before I get any further, um, what I want to do, I want to direct your attention to katet19.net. Uh, I know that I've talked about this before, but I, I strongly believe in this product and I really think that you guys would benefit from heading on over to ka-tet19.net or, or you just type in ka-tet19.net or ka-tet19 t-shirts into Google and it will come up. So guys, if you are in the mood for stylish, fun, good-looking, Stephen King-inspired t-shirts, please head on to this, this website. I'm looking at it right now. Um, and there's so many that I want. I mean, there is 
There's the one that I have, which I love, uh, The Man in Black Fled Across the Desert and The Gunslinger Followed. I think that everyone should head on over there and get some sort of Dark Tower-inspired t-shirt to wear in the movie theater when the, the movie comes out. There is a great Abbey Road-looking uh, t-shirt that says, Hey Jude, and rather than the Beatles, it's the Cotet walking across Abbey Road. It's very clever. There's a Dixie Pig logo. Um, there is a just a, a cool... Uh, Gilead gunslingers with the, the symbol of the affiliation. There is a uh, the the symbol of Ka. Ka is a wheel. I have that T-shirt. It's a really good fitting T-shirt. Uh, there is a a Lobstrosities one. There's Shardik University. There's the Losers Club. Dairy Maine. See the turtle. Ain't he keen? There's a Overlook Hotel one. There's a new Nazala one. Uh, the the previous Nazala, and I wonder if it's coming back. I will reach out to Matt to see if it's coming back. The old one was done in a, a sort of Coke logo. This one is more of of a Pepsi looking logo. So it's fun that there's there's multiple versions out there. Um, but I don't I don't see the old version on the website. Uh, there is an Oi t-shirt for all of you fans of Oi. I think that you should head on out and get that. There's a, uh, a Pet Cemetery one, RIP Church. There's a Sheb's, uh, there's a Sheb's Saloon t-shirt. Um, so there's a lot. There's a lot to choose from, guys. I don't think that you will be disappointed if you head on over to katet19.net. I, I think that you will enjoy. There's a Blaine is a pain. Uh, there is. There's definitely a lot to choose from. There's currently 47 products available. That's what it's saying right now. But I, I think that there's more. There is a. Um, there's a new hat that they have with the the Kaza wheel logo. So, guys, if you if you want to look stylish and support Stephen King and support uh, fans of Stephen King because the the guys over at Katet 19 clearly are fans of Stephen King. So this would be a really good way to just support Stephen King fandom while supporting Stephen King himself. Uh, they have the the rights to license um, the art of Michael Whelan from the the Dark Tower books, um, and they're working on I believe getting other licenses as well. So. This is definitely something that, that you guys should try out. I currently have three or four of their t-shirts and every day is a constant struggle for me not to order more shorts, uh, shirts from them. So head on over to ka-tet19.net and you will not be disappointed. And up next, this is big news, guys. I'm very excited to announce this one. Writer-director Josh Brucker has acquired the film rights to one of King's more memorable short stories, uh, the sequel to Salem's Lot, One for the Road. Uh, now, for those of you who remember, I I reviewed One for the Road when I reviewed Night Shift the first time the first time around, and it's one of the short stories that I always I just always enjoyed going back to. One for the setting. And two, for the, uh, the sequel status, uh, if you will, as um, a companion piece to Salem's Lot. So Josh and I have been in touch, and as production on this film continues, I'm going to be able to keep you all updated uh, on this gem of a story. So not only are we getting a, a film adaptation of this awesome short story that takes place in, within the world of Salem's Lot, but this particular adaptation is going to feature the living legend himself, Lance Henriksen. That's right, guys. The Lance Henriksen, star of Pumpkinhead. He's Bishop from Aliens, uh, Frank Black from Millennium. Um, 
and the underappreciated Bigfoot meets rear window thriller, Abominable. Uh, guys, I, I don't know how much you like your, your Bigfoot movies, but if you want to see the story of Bigfoot terrorizing uh, a small um, skiing uh, cabin complex with an appearance from both Lance Hendrickson and Jeffrey Combs as local hunters, you're in for a treat. And that movie has a fantastic death by face-eating scene that you'll ever see. Um, it is a great Bigfoot story. Head on over to to, to Abominable. You, you won't be disappointed. Um, but back to One for the Road, guys. Uh, Lance Hendrickson, as you may know, he is the only man to be killed by a Terminator, an alien, and a Predator. And he is going to be in this movie. So... I'm very excited about it. Um, I've been in communication with um, with Josh, and I, I think that he has a, a really good handle on this story. I'm looking forward to see to seeing what he has in store, uh, cinematically speaking, and just the fact that Lance Henriksen will will be in this is is definitely a treat for all of us. Now, the story itself, as you know, it's an effective glimpse into that post Salem's Lot life. You know, it's a it's a tense. A dread-filled, atmospheric short story, um, and I think that it's one that I'm I'm very surprised that it has not been adapted yet. Uh, not only because it's an effective vampire story for all the reasons that I just listed, but because of the existing IP, um, the fact that it has that connection to Salem's Lot, uh, that that definitely just it makes it more valuable um, to to make as a movie. So. Josh um, is fortunate enough to have has gotten his his hands on the rights, and I don't think that he's going to screw it up. I'm very very excited to to see what he has in store for us. So make sure that you head on over. Uh, there's an official Facebook page, so if you just uh, type into to Facebook one for the road, um, you'll you'll see you'll see some options, and um, you'll, it's very easily able to be found. So. Uh, check it out and then like it and follow it. So you like it and then click on follow. And guys, do the same for me, uh, for Stephen King cast. Make sure that you like and follow um, because once you do this to both my page and One for the Road, I'll be giving updates on, on One for the Road as we go along. And, and, and of course, uh, Josh has a pretty big social media presence on Facebook, so there's a lot of uh, videos on set. Um, and giving updates as as he goes along. So like it, follow it, start to get the word out, and then keep your eyes open on this upcoming project because it looks like it's going to be a good one. So the more updates I get, the more I will share them with you. There will be a crowdfunding um, uh, endeavor at some point. I will put it out there for for everyone. So the more information that I get, the more information I'll be give to 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 all of you. So. Make sure that you're following uh, One for the Road on social media. Head on over to uh, OneForTheRoad2018.com. Uh, uh, that's the official webpage. Uh, you can check out the IMDB page for more information. It's a killer poster. I really, really enjoy it. It's a, a female vampire. You just really see her from the, the, the lips up, uh, licking her lips, and it just says One for the Road. <clears throat> it's... It's very simple, but very, very effective. So I'm excited about this. I think that you guys should be excited about this. Uh, head on over to OneForTheRoad2018.com. Check it out on IMDb and the Facebook page. And make sure that you're following me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram for more information about all things Stephen King, now including One For The Road. 
So in other news, uh, there has been some Dark Tower, not huge news, but uh, there has been a, a new Dark Tower feature. I don't want to call it a a trailer because it's it's not a trailer, um, but we, we definitely, one thing I think the biggest takeaway that we see from it, and the focus here is on Roland, <clears throat> the biggest takeaway is the gunplay. So I don't know how this movie is going to play out. You know if you just follow the Stephen King cast episodes over the last uh, year or so, uh, you'll know that I was really excited about a year ago at this time during the summer. I thought that there was a lot of confidence, but as the, the summer gave way to the fall and the fall gave way to the winter and there was no trailer, I started to get worried. Don't get me wrong, I when the trailer finally dropped, I was very, very excited, but the marketing campaign, what they've done, and they have been working, I will give them that. I just don't feel like what they've done has been overly effective. <clears throat> but whatever we get from this movie, one thing that I am guaranteed that we're going to get that's going to be fantastic is the gunplay. The way that they have Roland shooting these guns and the focus of the guns, the fact that he's the gunslinger, they are not going to let us down in that regard. Uh, so I am very, very excited about just how cool he looks with the guns. Um, now, we had a new poster that dropped <clears throat> the other night, and good lord, it looks bad. It is it's Roland and the man in black standing on top of a rooftop with a opaque, ghostly, white, dark tower in the background beyond New York City. It's just a Photoshop mess. It does not look good. And it says something along the, the log line is they're bringing their war to our world, something like that. Now, nothing about the Dark Tower story, that, that's not what it's about. It is not about bringing their war to our world. It is about saving the Dark Tower. It's about Roland's obsession to get to the Dark Tower. And our world is just a part of it. One thing that I don't think that I mentioned in the, the Dark Tower trailer review is they do not seem to be acknowledging infinite worlds. What The information I'm getting from the marketing and from the trailer is that there are two worlds, Midworld and Earth. And if one falls, the other falls. And I am not... I'm not liking that, if that's the case. Um, I... And part of me is worried that part of me is worried that they're, that they're dumbing it down or not dumbing it down, but, but playing it safe. Maybe the the idea of infinite worlds uh, just existing held aloft by the beams shooting out of this dark tower. Maybe that's too weird for Sony executives. I I don't know, but uh, if it's only two worlds and they're bringing their war to our world, I'm, I'm not a fan of that. I'm not a fan of that particular take. Um, I, I don't necessarily think it's going to play out that way in the movie, but the marketing for it uh, certainly is leading us to believe that that's, that's what it's about. Um, maybe it's just a palatable way to promote this movie. Maybe, I don't know, but all I know that for a, a series that is as imaginative and crazy as it is, uh, the marketing has been very bland. Uh, the posters that we've gotten of the, the, it's like the same, it's the same still of Matthew McConaughey, uh, kind of turning, kind of looking at the camera in, in that same outfit. 
and it's very similar uh, stills of 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 Idris Elba. Um, I don't know. I, I just I, I just think it's time to do something a little bit more dynamic with this marketing campaign because it started out being dynamic. It started out being a little bit different. They completely dropped the Sombra app. They stopped uh, trying to be forward thinking uh, with their viral marketing. I don't know what happened along the way. I don't know if they got cold feet. I don't know if someone, if there was some sort of just within the marketing department or whoever was assigned to the Dark Tower. I don't know how that works. I don't know if someone left or someone else came on or if there was a, a, a committee that was that that conceded that it should be a little bit more average and that's putting it nicely I, I don't know but I do know that I wish that it was a little bit more now in the world of Castle Rock as you know we are getting a Castle Rock television show on Hulu and there's more information coming out about it so I'm reading this from the Hollywood Reporter Sissy Spacek and Jane Levy are moving into Hulu's Castle Rock. The duo have been tapped to star alongside Andre Holland in the anthology, in anthology drama from J.J. Abrams and Stephen King. Castle Rock is a 10-episode project from writers and executive producers Sam Shaw and Dustin Thomason. It is described as an anthology that weaves together characters and themes from King's novels featuring the mysterious town of Castle Rock. The psychological horror series combines the mythological scale and intimate character storytelling of King's works, weaving a saga of darkness and light, played out on a few square miles of Maine woodland. Spacek, who recently wrapped up Netflix's Bloodline, will star as Ruth Deaver, the estranged adoptive mother of Henry and a retired professor whose fading memories may hold a key to Castle Rock's unsettling past. The casting reunites Spacek with King after the actress starred in the 1976 feature film adaptation of his horror classic, Carrie. The Oscar winner is repped by... Okay, I'm not going to read that. Meanwhile, suburb, suburb, suburgatory grad Levy will play Jackie, the death-obsessed and self-appointed historian of Castle Rock. The actress most really recently starred in the horror feature, Don't Breathe. Levy, okay, again, it's about uh, who was repped here okay shaw and thomason developed the warner brothers television drama for tv and executive produce alongside abrams and his bad robot topper ben stevenson and liz glatzer production will begin later this year a premiere date has not yet been determined and here is what we know about castle rock this is also from the hollywood reporter so castle rock is a 10 episode drama from writers and executive producers sam shaw and dustin thomason which i just read it is described as an ongoing series those sources tell the hollywood reporter that it's more of an anthology that will weave together characters and themes from king's novels featuring the mysterious town of castle rock each season sources say will follow a different set of characters and storylines while interjecting themes and specific characters from previous seasons logline here's how hulu describes the series a psychological horror series set in Stephen King multiverse, Castle Rock combines the mythological scale and intimate character storytelling of King's best love works, weaving an epic saga of darkness and light, played out on a few square miles of Maine woodland. The fictional Maine town of Castle Rock has figured prominently in King's literary career, Cujo, The Dark Half, It, and Needful Things. Uh, that is incorrect. Uh, it does not take place in Castle Rock. 
um, as well as the novella The Body, and numerous short stories such as Rita Hayworth and The Shawshank Redemption are either set there or contain references to Castle Rock. Castle Rock is an original suspense thriller, a first-of-its-kind reimagining that explores the themes and worlds uniting the entire King canon while brushing up against some of his most iconic and beloved stories. So, I am very, very excited about the what and the logline here. They really seem, the, the, the showrunners, um, Sam and Dustin, they really seem to be fans, first and foremost, and they seem to just get it. I, I just like this logline, how it's, it's talking about the multiverse, it's talking about brushing up against some of his most iconic and beloved stories. I like the fact that it is something fresh, it's something new, established, um, just taking place in the established world of, of, of Castle Rock. And in terms of um, the casting here, I, I just really wanted to share the fact that, that Sissy Spacek has been cast. Uh, I mean, I love casting like this, this, this sort of meta casting. I mean, of course that, you know, she is being cast. Well, I mean, the, it's not the reason why she's being cast, but it's definitely a benefit to her casting is because she is Carrie. And I, I hope that I hope that Castle Rock is a success for so many reasons. But one, you can have more casting like this. I mean, think about all the actors that have been in Stephen King adaptations throughout the years, and to have familiar faces just make their way through the town, it, it, it's going to just reinforce that sense of belonging in Castle Rock and being familiar with Castle Rock, and just having this be a, a place that we have spent decades in in the, the literary form and in the um, uh, cinematic form as well. So I'm very excited about this casting with Sissy Spacek and with Jane Levy. I don't know why Jane Levy isn't a bigger deal than she is. Um, I heard really good things about Suburgatory. I never saw it, but I heard good things. Uh, but she was by far, in a way, the best part of Evil Dead. She was great in Don't Breathe. And whenever she pops up in a, in a movie... Uh, there was one just on, on Netflix, uh, I Don't Belong Here, I think is the name of the movie. It's a really good, dark little movie. Um, it's a mean little movie. Uh, she pops up in it. She's great in it. Doesn't really have much to do, but I, I like, I, it, I, seems to me that I'm going to enjoy the role that she's playing, and I think that she is able to bring a, a lot to a role. So this is this is really, really good casting. They're doing a good job uh, with the casting so far, and I'm very excited to see what uh, Sam and Dustin are going to be giving to us uh, when Castle Rock hits Hulu. Okay, guys, so up next, what I'll be doing, I'll be reading some listener emails because you know I can't do this without you. I love getting feedback from all of you, so... Um, if you have a few minutes on your hands, you want to share your thoughts, if you want to share any disagreements that you might have with anything that I have said, uh, if you want to uh, share what Stephen King means to you, how you got into Stephen King, your favorite book, your favorite movies, um, your favorite moments from Stephen King, feel free to just write to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. So... Up first, we have Will Barney, who writes, Heil, constant reader. I'm a big fan of your show. I discovered you a few months ago when I first started getting into podcasts. You, sir, have the distinct honor of being the very first podcast I ever subscribed to. Whoop-de-doo, right? While I haven't been constant reading for nearly as long as yourself or many of the 
countless others in the world, I don't think I appreciate King any less for it. But that's the magic of King, isn't it? Whether you've been reading him since day one or it's your day one in the kingdom, he has a sort of way of creeping into your life. He creeps upon you. But what I came here to say was how much I greatly appreciate your podcast. As a 20-year-old college junior majoring in English literature, no less, I've had my fair share of bullshit literature classes, and since I first got into King when I read The Stand for the first time when I was 15, I've been ridiculed and laughed out of literature classes when I try to discuss King as a legitimate writer and artist. But maybe that's more of a comment on my own ability to articulate, haha. In all seriousness, though, it's refreshing to finally hear King discussed legitimately in an intellectual setting. Admittedly, I've only listened to the podcast sporadically, as I'm trying to keep to what I've already read seen, like The Dark Tower, The Stand, It, The Shining Salem's Lot, etc. So in short, I just want to say thank you and keep up the good work. Speaking of good work, now that you're getting to the point where all of the big ones, and even not as big but still pretty big ones, have been covered, I have a few recommendations I would suggest checking out and possibly making episodes about. In the vein of your review on Stranger Things, there's a video game out there that doesn't get nearly enough attention, and I think that all King fans should play called Alan Wake. The King influences are so blatantly present that it almost plays like a very immersive mix of the dark half, it, and desperation. I mean, the first words spoken in the game are Stephen King, and the creators of the game sent King a copy of the finished game upon release, even though they were pretty sure he had never and never will ever touch an Xbox. Additionally, I think a brief discussion of Twin Peaks might be warranted, and unless I'm mistaken, some of Stephen King's directorial material hasn't been covered yet. The main ones that come to mind are the Shining TV miniseries, Rose Red, and Kingdom Hospital. Anyway, I just wanted to express my gratitude for your valiant effort and give my words of encouragement to please, please never stop. Thank you, Cy. Thank you, Big Big. Long days and pleasant nights, Will. Will, thank you for writing in. Um, and, and yes, I think there are major, many of us who went through the, uh, the, the world of being an English major and just feeling that there are two types of, of, of novels. There are the, 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 the novels that are found in literature with capital L and there's everything else and that um, traditional academia uh, counted Stephen King as everything else. I don't think that that's true. And one of my goals was to was to to really, you know, provide a platform on which we could celebrate and really look deeply at what Stephen King does here on a subtextual level. Um, because I think that there is definitely merit and worth to what he's doing. It is not just schlock as so many. So many just average people, ooh, that sounds bad, average, just, just average Americans, I guess, or just average readers, or just people that haven't picked up Stephen King. Um, they're not average people. They're not average. Uh, I'm not classifying people here. I'm just saying that there's a lot of people that maybe haven't taken the time to really dive too deeply into Stephen King or might have dismissed him based on a bad adaptation. But no, I, I think that for us Stephen King fans, we know, we know his worth and we know what he... Uh, what he is able to, to deliver to all of us. Now, in terms of reviewing Alan Wake, I'm a PlayStation guy. I don't have an Xbox. I have been waiting for Alan Wake actually to come to one of the PlayStation platforms because I have always wanted to play it, but because um, I am a PlayStation guy, um, I'm not going to buy an Xbox just for, for Alan Wake, So, but it's one that I have, I have really, really wanted to, and I agree with you that it 
people don't talk about it enough. I remember when it first came out, there was a lot of discussion around it, and fans of the, you know, uh, survival horror were were very very excited about it. And then it kind of just died out. And I don't know, did they make the sequel? I know that they had been talking about the sequel, but in terms of just franchising, I don't think that Alan Wake ever really got its got that that um, that traction that it needed to to keep on going. But that's not necessarily a bad thing because franchise and the survival horror genre don't necessarily go hand in hand very well. Um, you know, how many Fatal Frames did they make? Three. Um, the 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 first two were phenomenal. Um, but anything after that isn't great. Silent Hill, again, I loved Silent Hill. Silent Hill 1 and Silent Hill 2, especially Silent Hill 2, um, are just terrifying, terrifying experiences. But everything after that, I think, falls apart. And then the Resident Evil games really are, I think that they have just been trying for about a decade now, just trying to figure out what they want Resident Evil to be. And just it limps along. I mean, there, there's been some bright spots, but then it falls apart. And so, I mean, I just, you know, if Alan Wake didn't have too many games, that's not necessarily a bad thing in the long run. And then Twin Peaks. Um, I've said before on social media and maybe on the on the podcast, if, if I were ever to do another podcast... Uh, there's the possibilities are are very limited, but they would be limited to me talking about either Lost, but I really wouldn't do that because what I would do has already been done. And if you are a Lost fan, then you need to check out Looking Back at Lost by Matt Lafferty. So much of the structure of the Stephen King cast I just took from how Matt structured Looking Back at Lost. So if you are a Lost fan and a Stephen King cast fan, you really should be checking out Looking Back at Lost because Matt went through the chronological order of Lost episode by episode across all six seasons with some bonus episodes here and there. And he just tracks the characters and he places every episode and every character arc in the greater context of Lost with what we know at the end. Um... And uh, you, you'll recognize the structure um, of the Stephen King cast because I got it from Matt Lafferty. So it's a fantastic podcast, and um, you should definitely check that one out. Um, so I would either do a podcast on Lost, or I would do a podcast on Twin Peaks, uh, because for me, Twin Peaks was everything to me. Twin Peaks came out when I was in fourth grade, and I watched it when I was in fourth grade. And so much of my sensibilities of what I appreciate in storytelling come from what David David Lynch and Mark Frost gave us then. Um, so much of Dale Cooper, I don't know if it's because I gravitated towards him, uh, because I recognized kind of something in, in him that I saw in myself or because he was just such an influential figure at me at such an early age. But I, I just... Has, he has always been a personal hero to me. So I, I, if I were to do another podcast, it would be all about Twin Peaks. Um, and I just got to say, we are eight episodes into Twin Peaks The Return. And I could not be any happier. What I wanted from Twin Peaks going into this new season was I wanted a little bit of familiar, but I wanted to be challenged I wanted it to be strange. Um, I did not want it to be like the, the greatest hits of Twin Peaks. I wanted it to open up the world in new and interesting and exciting ways. And I just wanted to be surprised. And that's what it's giving me. 
you know, it's not, it is not the Force Awakens of Twin Peaks. It is not a regurgitation of a plot that we have already seen. It's not forcing the, uh, the, the, the veteran characters down our throats just because that's what revivals do. No, it is giving us new character after new character after new character in, and our, our, our familiar characters are still showing up, but they're, they're showing up sometimes in familiar ways. Sometimes Dr. Kobe, I'm looking at you in, in fun and interesting ways. And, Ah, every, every Sunday night is such an amazing experience. And this past Sunday, it wasn't on and, and I was going through withdrawals of not having it. And, and now it's, it's Tuesday and we're creeping closer to Sunday. So the, the balance is, is establishing itself again. And I'm going to be very sad when it, when it has concluded. Um, but the, the good news is, is we have 10 more episodes, 10 more episodes of this crazy show. And, and what, what Showtime has allowed David Lynch and Mark Frost to give us is Showtime, I, I think, has gotten um, uh, a, a reputation for kind of being a wannabe HBO, right? I mean, the, the, the peak TV shows that they have put out haven't been that level that caliber of of Game of Thrones or The Sopranos or The Leftovers or what have you. You know, we get, you know, Shameless. And I like Shameless, but Shameless is not meant to do what Game of Thrones... It is not a a must-see-in-the-moment show, right? Neither is Ray Donovan. Really, like, just... I watch Showtime. I have my subscription to Showtime. I watch Showtime shows. Don't get me wrong. I do. Um, But it's just not at the same level until Twin Peaks came along. Um, what they're allowing these these creators to do on television is so commendable. This is the, the, the amount of storytelling and freedom that they are giving David Lynch and Mark Frost to, to do with these characters is you've never seen anything like that. And for what I and everyone that is is following Twin Peaks, this eighth episode was insane in all of the right ways so in 1990 when the the show first came on episode three comes along and that that's when the the very now famous um uh, introduction to the red room and the man from another place um and the the just the the the, the zigzag pattern on the floor the red curtains the talk backwards talking the, the the cryptic dream language um the, the fire walk with me poem um all of that was given to us for the, the first time and then it concludes with the dance of the little man so when that happened it just blew people's minds and what david lynch does 25 years later he does it again. But of course, like he doesn't just mimic what he did the first time around, but he again just challenged all of us, blew our minds. Just I just sat there with this insane goofy grin on my face the entire hour from the, the moment that it started with uh, with Evil Coop and Ray in the car to the very end um, when... <laughs> when the woodsman walks into the darkness and you hear the horse whinny in the darkness. Just everything in between was such an incredible journey. Um, and Twin Peaks, The Return, I mean, it is not, it feels different from what the original Twin Peaks was, but I wanted it to feel different. 
and it certainly feels different. So it is meeting my, it's not meeting my expectations, it's blowing my expectations out of the water. It's incredible. It is incredible. Um, so for those of you who are Twin Peaks fans, well, actually, here's the thing. I my, my wife was dead on when she said this. She says that this isn't necessarily for Twin Peaks fans. This is for David Lynch fans. People who are not fans of David Lynch but like Twin Peaks are going to hate this show. Um, but if you are a, a diehard David Lynch fan, then this is for you. Because when watching this show... You'll get senses and you'll you'll feel moments of Twin Peaks, but in this past episode, you know, especially, I felt like, whoa, this feels like a like a sequel in spirit to Mulholland Drive, to uh, Lost Highway, and of course, you know, Twin Peaks. But it what they are giving us is so rich and different from anything that you've ever seen. Um, so it it's. You know, what everything that I've said is what a million other uh, reviewers and writers and bloggers and podcast hosts have said. And there are many podcasts to choose from. So if you um, are looking for some uh, Twin Peaks podcasts, you could go to Fire Talk With Me, um, which was doing the podcasts long before the, the revival came about. So that was... Um, Jeremy, I believe, and Allie Gertz. Uh, you had one host who had seen all of Twin Peaks and Firewalk with me and is a major lynch head, and then one host who was experiencing for the first time. So it was a really interesting journey for Allie to take and for us to take with her as she made her way through Twin Peaks and hypothesized. And so it was good for her. And then now um, they're they're covering episode by episode and uh, of the new season, and everyone's in the dark. So everyone's hypothesizing and, and, and theorizing, and we're all doing it together. And so we can take their journey um, over at Fire Talk With Me. You could listen to Entertainment Weekly's official um, Twin Peaks podcast. Um, I, think it's, I think it's literally called a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. Uh, and that's uh, Darren Franich and Jeff Jensen. Jeff Jensen, who was like sort of my guru for Lost um, and his coverage and analysis for Lost kind of in in the background, you know, kind of made me want to be that for Stephen King. Uh, but they're doing a weekly podcast about uh, Twin Peaks. They actually just got Robert Forster uh, for an interview just to discuss the, his experience with uh, being Frank Truman. Or you could listen to uh, Peaks TV, from David Chen and Joanna Robinson, and they review it on every other week uh, rather than, than weekly. Um, so in this case, it's, it's going to be three weeks. It's going to be a three-week gap in, in that podcast un, until we get a new episode, but they do a good job as well. So there's many to choose from, but those are those would be the three that, that I recommend. All right, guys. Uh, and so with that out of the way, um, what I'm going to do now, I'm going to talk about The Mist. So, for those of you who don't know, Spike TV has gotten in on the the, the post-apocalyptic long-form storytelling game that has been popularized by The Walking Dead. FX matched The Walking Dead with The Strain, and Spike TV is giving us The Mist. Now, I have 
in the, the podcast before, I have talked about how I felt that the mist actually could work as an ongoing, you know, post-apocalyptic story. Uh, and so I was excited when Spike TV announced that they were going to do that. Uh, I, I like the world of the mist. I love the concept of the mist. And so, you know, I, I thought that it was it was a, a good experiment to to try out. Um, so I sat down and because Spike TV released the, the first three episodes on On Demand, I sat down and I reviewed the, the, the first three episodes um, on On Demand. Now, so for episode one, because the, the structure, um, well, because so much of that, that first episode is about introducing us to the characters um, of of this this particular adaptation, I'm going to break it down by the characters, and then because episodes two and three really focus on these characters in their separate locations, I'm then going to break it down by the locations. So to start off, uh, let's talk about the bugs first and foremost. The mist could have been retitled the bugs, and it would have still played out exactly the same. Um, so the first thing that you see is a spider. Um, and it's clearly foreshadowing, um, but it's also, uh, you know, for Stephen King readers, it's, um, you know, for, for those of us that, that know about it and his relationship with, with spiders, it's also a really fun way to, to start, but, um, more than anything else, it's just a, a nice little wink at the monsters to come. Um, and then from the, the spider transitions to a man in camouflage, um, uh, one of our main characters, Brian, um, and us Stephen King fans immediately know that he is going to be linked to the Arrowhead project. Um, and so he wakes up, he is in, uh, the, the woods and in the distance, you can see the mist coming. So, um, effective opening. I was really into it. Um, although I will say this, I've talked about Lost a couple times here. A man waking up in the forest with a dog next to him, it's very reminiscent of the opening of Lost. I don't know whether that's intentional or not intentional, but I needed to, to just state that. Um, so anyway, so the mist is coming and whether you know what's in the mist or not in the mist, mist, it's just generally creepy. And whenever you see it rolling through the trees um, in the way that you do here, it's effective, you know. And maybe that's why the story itself is as good as it is, um, because that there's just something just so classically horrific um, about mist. Um, you know, I, it immediately conjures images of, you know, hammer horror um, movies and just, you know, uh, Victorian London um, with wet streets and, and heavy fog rolling in. And there's just something about mist. I mean, every year on, on in Halloween, I, I have three fog machines and I just go through uh, fog juice left and right. And just my entire neighborhood is just blanketed in, in, in fog from my fog machines because it just creates such a wonderful wonderful spooky atmosphere and of course the the mist um maybe that is why it is as effective because it just hides the monsters within like the bugs um and that's all that we're getting from the monsters so far which reminds me here of um there is a an author um uh f paul wilson who uh he well he's actually revised all these stories so if you have nothing to do um and you have read all of stephen king 
you could head on over and read F. Paul Wilson's works because he started out. I'll get back to the mist in a second. It's all connected, but he he started out. Uh, his first book was The Keep, um, and it's an effective. Uh, there's there's a nice swerve in there, but it's an effective claustrophobic historical horror um, story with a really nice mystery set in in World War Two. And it opens up this this larger world, this darker world that ultimately concludes after a series of books um, that you don't necessarily think are connected at first. But then he pulls a Stephen King on us, um, just like King does with the Dark Tower. He winds up connecting all of his books to what was established in the Keep. And spoiler alert for um, the, uh, the 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 Night World cycle. Um, which is what it's called, um, the the final book, Night World. Spoiler alert: the 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 main villain, a um, an an evil immortal being from a primordial world uh, that had existed on our world long before history um, as we know it ever existed. Um, who is in service to ancient an ancient entity that I you don't even want to it's, it's it's beyond our concept of God it's very uh, Lovecraftian in that regard um, he is the, the 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 sort of the agent for that 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 being um, he's able to effectively do what he has been trying to do for eons and eons um, which is to bring that world to our world and it's called Night World. And so what happens is and a hole in the earth opens up in the middle of New York. And that's where it starts. And there's other other holes that open up, but they're bottomless and it's super creepy and no one knows what's going on. And what winds up happening is these creatures wind up coming from this hole. But, and here, here I go, this is how I get back to the mist. So in the mist, as the mist rolls in, the first things that we see are these bugs, these flying bugs. Um, and that's the first thing that we see in uh, in the in night world from these holes are all the insects that fly out, and they fly out first because they're the fast ones, they're the small ones. They're able to get to the surface quicker, so they might be the first ones that they see, but they're not the worst that they see. The larger ones take time, and I think that that's what we're getting here with the mist. We're seeing a lot of bugs because the bugs are able to fly faster, and the the greater beasts are going to take their time walking through the mist. I think that that I think that that's what we're getting here. So, um, so let's talk about the characters. With the bugs out of the way, let's talk about the characters. So our main characters here are Kevin, Eve, and Alice. And when the the story begins. Um, Alice is sitting in the principal's office. Um, she is a teacher, and she is being put on administrative leave um, for uh, teaching about condoms in her health class, which is frowned upon um, in this local community. Uh, this is going to wind up just tying into her reputation and... Um, her her life as a as a younger woman um and it's going to have echoes and ripple effects for her daughter as well but i'll get to that in a second so we meet her we meet her husband kevin as they sit by the 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 lake um they are a you know you can tell that they're well on paper they're they're loving i mean they're they don't really seem to have much of a spark they they say things that uh 
characters in movies and, and television that happen to be married say to each other but don't really people don't talk like that in real life it's just that very generic conversation between man wife man wife uh, or husband wife husband wife um and uh you know we we meet you know the daughter alex and so the the major conflict here comes when kevin the father lets alex go to this party this is against eve's wishes and as this happens uh you know that something is going to happen now what happens here it unfolds with the subtlety of a lifetime movie there's no nuance okay and the conflict that ensues here it's uninspired the, the sexual assault, it rips the family apart as Eve blames Kevin for letting Alex go and the lines are drawn in the sand throughout town with some residents taking the side of the boy whose father happens to be the sheriff and those taking the side of the victim, Alex. Now, I am not saying that this doesn't happen in real life. In many cases, the victims become the targets of vilification and further harassment. So I'm not saying that the subject matter isn't ripe for exploration. It's just that the way that it's played out here shows us that it's not going to go into the details that will ever make it realistic and therefore compelling. So, yes, the subject matter is ripe for exploration. I just worry that rather than exploring it, it's going to exploit it um, and give us a more sensational version of, of what occurs in real life. So I will talk more about uh, Kevin, Eve, and Alice uh, in episodes two and three as their story continues. So we then meet Mrs. Raven, who is played by Frances Conroy. So for fans of um, for fans of Six Feet Under, and she is also in American Horror Story, you'll know that Frances Conroy is just great in everything that she does. Um, and she is by far, by far, the best part of of the mist so far you know i can't say anything about episodes four through ten but episodes one through three she just whatever that it is she has it and she feels like an actual believable character um she and her husband are are hippie earthy crunchy and they're just sitting by the lake and just enjoying life and enjoying nature and so she is supposed to be the the mrs carmody character now for those of you who remember uh the the novella and the frank darabont adaptation um uh, mrs carmody in the movie was played by marcia gay harden uh and she is a religious zealot that whips everyone into a fervor. She takes control of their fear, and from that fear, she amasses a base of power and just makes things worse. She becomes a cult leader um, in a time of, of stress and chaos. And she, Mrs. Conroy, or uh, Mrs. Raven, played by Frances Conroy, is being set up as that character here. However, there are differences. And uh, Mrs. Carmody was very Old Testament, um, she was that Sylvia Pitson character from The Gunslinger. She was Carrie's mother from uh, from Carrie. She is that 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 deeply conservative, uh, very frightening religious zealot. Whereas Mrs. Raven is different. Um, she is she is uh, a worshiper, really, of of just nature and Mother Earth. So I, I think that that is an interesting take 
on this particular type of character. So rather than, you know, the the image of God and um, us being um, plagued by God and and the wrath of God, we are getting a a look at Mother Nature and someone who worships Mother Nature instead. So this it's a it's a it's a little change, but it's one that completely reshapes uh, the motivations of of this character. Now, Mrs. Carmody is in this adaptation um and she didn't have to be if they're gonna just be taking the 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 mrs carmody type and just giving it to mrs raven i like that we get mrs carmody um who shows up um and just like mrs carmody in uh the previous adaptations she's very judgy um at the mall she um she's giving uh eve a really hard time she's the one that had gone to the school board she's the reason why um eve has been put on administrative leave and she's very judgy of her daughter alex so through the mrs carmody character we get a viewpoint of the town and and how the town is viewing what occurred with with alex and uh, the boyfriend or love interest jay who uh had date raped her um and we can see that through mrs carmody there was a large contingent of the town that just isn't going to believe alex so i i know that i came down hard on on how they're playing this storyline um and maybe it's not that they're that the showrunners are doing a bad job at it maybe it's just that my fear that it's going to be handled clumsily is shaping how it's actually playing out i'm not sure and i haven't really read any reviews about the mist about how this is how it's playing out um but through mrs carmody we do get that um that moral high ground that holier than thou attitude and um so i i did like that and as soon as mrs carmody is introduced uh, she very quickly exits as she is one of our, our first victims. Um, and she is the first victim for everyone at the mall to see that there is something dangerous lurking in the mist. So uh, my final thoughts on this first episode. Uh, first of all, the characters. I, 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 to me... I, I think that the, the characters are um, placed into boxes, like just very cliched boxes. Um, and even though they, they seem very generic, I will give them this. There are moments of small detail that resonate loudly. So for instance, when Jay, the, uh, after the accusation comes that he has, you know, uh, date raped uh, Alex, and we check in on him, and he's at school, and he is approached by police officers in the, the hallway, and he immediately thinks that something, is, that something happened to his dad. Now, I like that touch. That's a little touch that didn't need to happen, and it kind of shows us something about that character, um, that really, you know, he, he's not some evil figure. He's someone in that moment the 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 son of a cop the son of a sheriff who was just approached in the hallway by one of his father's uh co-workers and immediately he doesn't think that he's in trouble immediately he thinks that something has happened to his father i really like that touch that works for me um and there's another moment that happens later when jay is driving in the car with his father 
and he says something to the, the dad along the lines of you're acting like I did it something like that and it's they're not making it clear whether he did it or did not do it and I'm going to get to that in a little bit because that could blow up in their faces um, but by not presenting this character as an outright like um, like Junior from uh, from Under the Dome you know he, he's just not this clear cut stock villain um, I, I do like that that they're giving us some, some nuance here um, and I guess I gotta give them credit for, for trying to focus on the hot topics of our times um, you know for instance uh, Eve's struggle uh, represents a progressive educational system being stifled by conservatism you know um, and Alex's story definitely falls under news stories, uh, especially the, 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 the Brock Turner one that we got last year of white privileged male athletes being able to do whatever they want to whoever they want with no consequences. And like I said, this showrunner is not making it easy for us. Um, you know, so the, the, the conversation that Jay has in the car with his dad, um, you know, asking him, you know, why are you acting like I did it? it it's, it's, it's muddying these waters. Um, now, this could either be uh, a boy afraid of the consequences of his actions, or it could be something. Um, it could be, uh, you know, an indication that he is innocent. Now, in the hands of a lesser showrunner, we might get, you know, like I said, someone over the top um, or, or cartoonishly villainous like Junior. Um, you know, and similarly, you know, we get complex mother-daughter relationships. Um, the, the relationship between Eve and Alex is is a little complex, um, and you know Alex is aware of her mother's history in the town, and you know she is um, resentful of her mom um, that that she is in this position that people are not believing her because of her mom's history. So I mean, their mother daughter relationships can be very complex, and we're getting a little bit of that here. Um, but this, to me, I, I don't know why none of this is clicking for me because it just it feels like this is the promise of what could have been. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the characters are not as generic as I thought that they were going to be, and they, they're coming close to be actually fully defined. There's glimmers of what could have been, but it's never able to break out of the ripped-from-the-headlines broad sensationalism that Law & Order was always known for. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I've seen every episode of SVU at least five times, and whenever there's a marathon in, on USA, I have to watch it. But I feel that when it comes to survival horror, you need to up your game. You know, especially when Romero threw down the gauntlet with Night of the Living Dead as far back as he did. Um, so if you're going to play in this genre, you have to improve it. And if you can't, then you shouldn't. Um, and the entire time I was watching this, I could not help but think of what Frank Darabont was able to do with the film adaptation and how he was able to execute the material um, and the characters and the conflict in the movie adaptation and just how shallow this show is starting out to be. Now, we have this mist effect. Let's talk about the mist effect. Now, I know that they used actual fog machines, which is great. I talked about how much I love fog machines earlier in this episode, but it's clear that they also used a, 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 a special effect to enhance the mist, 
Um, but it doesn't enhance the mist. It, it, it's almost like a, a, just a, a fuzzy filter over the lens. And it, to me, it, I found it very distracting, and it gives the show a, a low-quality look to it. And with that, let's talk about the gore. Okay. So I guess on one hand, props for going gory, okay? But to me, it's trading the tension and the terror and the mounting dread that makes the story so compelling, it trades all that for just cheap horror. Now, I like body horror. I like gory horror. I'm fine with it when it's, a, when it's the right story for it. I just don't know if The Mist is the right story for just gore and just horror. I think that there needs to be, like I said, that, that mounting dread and that uncertainty of what's in the mist. Um, that's what works about the story as well as it does. Yeah, you get some gore, you get some body horror, that's fine. But King first and then Darabont was able, they were able to create this unsettling unknown quality of what lurked in the mist and the current showrunner has failed personally to me has failed to create that tension instead we just see a lot of gore also people are spending too much time in the mist uh there was a death sentence in in the in the novella and then the adaptation that if you went out into the mist you're dead it wasn't going to take long for you to just get got by the monsters that lurked within. People are just stumbling around all over the mist um, in, in, in the TV series. And sometimes people die, sometimes they don't die. But the, 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 the fact that mist does not equal near immediate death to me really takes something out, take, takes me out of the show. But going back to the, 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 the Darabont version, just think about when the mist was rolling in and then you hear the sirens and then um oh what's oh what is his name um jeffrey demun seeing jeffrey demun running towards the, the the shopping center looking into the mist he's bleeding from the nose i believe and just the sound you know the the siren is sounding like it it just created so much tension and there was no gore you know, he wasn't running towards us with his arm dangling off. That, you know, that sort of thing will, will come later. But for now, all we needed was one man being scared to scare the rest of us. And I just, I don't think that we're, we're getting that level of, of fright. And then we head into episode two. So um, we, we check in with the characters in the police station. Um, and that would be Brian, the, the soldier, that would be Mia, the, the, the murderer, and that would be Kevin and um, Adrian, Adrian being the best friend of his daughter, Alex. So we check in with the characters in the police station, um, and, and they quickly decide that their best course of action is to hightail it to the mall. Not only are Kevin's wife and child there, but he also assumes that there's enough food and supplies to sustain them. So before they make it to the car, we learn that Mia is an addict. Now, there is a first of many scenes between her and Brian, the amnesiac soldier. Now, whether she's truly concerned about being left behind or whether she's emotionally manipulating him, I'm not quite sure. 
but they pile into the car, and not long after, they encounter a man with a gun in a scene that was better rendered in War of the Worlds. Now, they manage to get away, and while they might have avoided the carjacker, they can't avoid the parked car ahead of them, and one car crash later, the car is flipped upside down. They watch in dread as the window spiderwebs and breaks, leaving them exposed to the mist curling outside of the car. Now, like I just said, that would be more effective if we thought that that would mean immediate death or that there's something in the mist that's immediately going to get you. But as we just saw, there was a guy stumbling around in the mist, and he's fine. You know, he's scared, but he's fine. So there is survival chances of being in the mist. Okay, so they might not make it to the mall, but they are able to make it to the church. So while Mia runs back to the car to get the guns, she encounters a new aspect to this story, new to every version of the story, new to the show, new to the movie, new to the novella, and it's more in line with what we see from um, The Raft. All right, now in The Raft, the, the, the oil slick on the water was able to mesmerize its prey. And similarly here, the um, Mia is confronted by the image of what I assume is her mother or some sort of mother figure in her life. Um, and I get the impression here that the mist is more of a, a, of a conscience, conscious uh, entity than it had been in previous iterations that's able to conjure the forms um, to, to hypnotize or lure its victims deeper into itself. Um, so that's, that's an interesting take. I'm not sold or not sold on it. I need to see how it plays out. Um, you know, I, I, a part of me likes the mist just being the mist, but I'm going to keep an open mind because I understand that you do need to make changes, you know, when, when adapting, um, something into a new medium, especially something that is going to be stretching out possibly over seasons here. We need to add, um, we need to add some components here to, to make it worth watching as, as we continue. So this could be, this could be the, the, the key to sustain success over a longer period of time, but we'll see. So, um, while in the church, Kevin and Mrs. Raven, they share a moment, um, and it doesn't last very long. It's just a minute. But in that minute, guys, it's just, it's Francis Conroy, um, just being Francis Conroy and just making it work. Um, and it's unfortunate that her abilities as an actress really reveal, uh, a lot of the other actors' inabilities as actors and actresses, because like I said, about a minute. The, the the conversation that they have is just about a minute and what she does in that minute, just talking about the permanence of her husband's death who had died in the, the previous episode, it's she is able to just give so much to it. I mean, it's not large, it's not over the top, she's not wailing and being dramatic or being melodramatic or you know, checking off, you know, kind of actory boxes. It's subtle. It's quiet, and I found it deeply moving. Um, and also, it just it reinforces this character's belief in nature, um, and 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 how rather than the the Mrs. Carmody from the book and the movie, um, God in the afterlife. This is not it's not her personal belief. Uh, like I said earlier, she believes in Mother Nature and understanding nature. You know, she understands that everything dies, and because everything dies. Her husband is gone, and there's no looking forward to the afterlife. They had their time, 
and now he's gone and now she has to mourn and that's sad and it's interesting to me how we just saw the mist itself exploiting um, one character's weakness so if we have a character that believes so heavily in nature and we have this evil mist rolling in filled with unnatural insects and other animals of nature um, I, you're starting to see how the, the role that she's going to play and how she's going to get there um, and then um, <laughs> one thing about the church that cracks me up it, it took me a while but that's Bulldog guys from, from Frasier if you're friends of Frasier and you probably recognize them right away but it's it's Bulldog is the priest um, which is just it's just fun to see so um, this church scene uh, concludes with Mrs. Raven eulogizing her deceased husband and passing around bottles of wine to the survivors and I talked about how the show d didn't make Jay the um the, the the date rapist how it didn't turn him into a, a cartoonish villain but I cannot say the same about his father um, his father is a cartoonishly villain uh, villainous character um, he's just a dick to be a dick he's like the uh, the um, uh, the the Ken Marino character from uh, Wet Hot America no not Wet Hot um, from Wanderlust at one point he's just like I'm just being a dick to be a dick I'm I'm just being a dick to be a dick that is that is what the 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 sheriff is here he's just a jerk he's he's over the top um, he doesn't you know whatever like I don't I don't even know why I brought up like at one point the Adrian the the kid the friend of Alex wants to drink some wine and. The, the sheriff comes over, takes it out of his, his hand and says something about underage drinking, you know. Um, to, to me, in that moment, it it just, want, the, the showrunners want to remind us that he's not a good guy. Um, so what happens, What I guess what could happen here is what if he wasn't a cartoonish villain? Because there is a lot to mine from this story and the fact that the, the two fathers are stuck in the same location with each other. Um, so there's a lot to mine from this story, from the interaction between uh, you know he and Kevin. So what if he wasn't cartoonishly villainous? What if he wasn't bad? What if he was a good police officer torn between protecting his son and, and doing the right thing? What if he honestly didn't believe that his son did it? What if he was a good man confined in a small space with another good man, with the two of them just having opposing motivations? Why did they just make him be, quote-unquote, the bad guy who left his prisoners in the police station to run away? Like, if they just presented him differently, this could be very dynamic and very, very interesting, but we just get the, the, the one-note version of the character. So, that is what's happening in the church. In the mall... We quickly meet our expanding cast, including Gus Bradley, played by Isaiah Whitlock Jr., who will always be remembered as Senator Clay She Davis from The Wire. Now, he is such a friendly face that it's immediately so welcoming to see him. Um, Gus immediately serves as an authority figure within the mall due to the fact that he's the mall manager. So... They quickly learn that one of the hallways in the mall um, is completely covered with mist, um, complete with a dead security guard. And like in the Poseidon Adventure, they need to get through that hallway to get to a radio that will get them in contact with the authorities. 
um, with the exception with you know I mentioned the Poseidon adventure in the Poseidon adventure you know they would need to swim under a water filled uh, hallway here they have to get through a mist filled hallway so um, in a neat development they 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 use a drone to scope out the hallway um, and I like how television and, and, and movies they're, they're still trying to figure out the best way to use drones and drone technology but um, the, the drone here finds another body with bloody lettering scrawled beside it um, no one can quite figure out who the person is or what he was trying to spell but because the hallway is now clear of mist um, they draw straws to pass through the corridor to get to the radio it turns out that the person whose name is drawn from the hat is Eve, and um, I am not sure if this is the showrunner's way of demonstrating Gus Bradley's cowardice for letting her go and, and not doing it himself, or the showrunner's laziness because the heroine has to do this job. I'm not sure. Um, the, the letters that the, the dead body was spelling, by the way, it was A-R-R. No one knows what he was trying to spell. Um, we know what he was trying to spell, um, of course, um, being the, the Arrowhead Project. Um, so she is not going to be going in this hallway alone. She's joined by a mysterious character who knows more than he lets on. Uh, once they get to the office and to the radio, he immediately begins to try to get hold of Arrowhead. So there is a struggle and a chase through the mist ensues. They fight over a gun and Eve manages to shoot him and escapes before being swallowed up by whatever was lurking in the midst. And here it was, guys. This is the moment where I just turned on the show. Um... Here is a character who, until this moment, had been a normal, everyday woman. Uh, she was a teacher. She's a, she's a, a wife. She's a mother. All right. She's just living, you know, the, the suburban life. And now she's able to take on an undercover operative and shoot him without massive post-traumatic stress. Now, I understand in, in moments of survival horror, we, we always go... You know, we, we, we get our characters having to, to go to extremes to survive. but And that's fine. That's a, that's a case of her going to an extreme to survive. I understand that. But it can't come without fallout. There needs to be some sort of consequence. And I feel that in this instance, the entirety of this sequence, much like the show itself, it was just paint by numbers. And our characters move listlessly from, uh, from the beginning of a scene to the end of the scene because the writers... Are, need to make it happen, but it doesn't feel as though it's being driven by the characters. So when Eve comes back to the group, she is way too calm, she is way too collected, and she's just lying through her teeth like a practiced sociopath. You know, when looking at some of the strangers in the mall, which would be normal, this is a mall, all right? Um, <laughs> and it's the world's least populated mall by the way but it's, it's a mall um, just looking at people she doesn't recognize she grows suspicious of them not paranoid just suspicious it is a stupid plot point okay and it, it, the, all of this concludes with Jay the possible date rapist discovering the hanged body of these suspicious strangers so everything that's occurring in the mall just really turned me off Eve is not going to be able to do what she did without freaking out afterwards and then for her to look at people in a mall and say, I don't know who they are, clearly something is suspicious about them. Um, it, it, it just feels so forced and it's not unfolding organically. It is coming about because the storytellers telling the story need to tell the story and this is how they're going about telling it. And to me, it is not as effective as it, it probably should be. So 
for this particular episode, the good, we had Francis Conroy, who was killing it. And I really like the fact that it's taking place across multiple settings. The fact that it's taking place in a church, and it was taking place in the police office, and now it's taking place um, in the mall. You know, seeing our characters in three different locations, knowing that they're going to have to get to each other, what is that going to be? What's that going to be look? You know, what's that going to be like? Because our characters are going to form their their interpersonal relationships based on the settings that they happen to be in, and of course, when the other characters come in, it's going to upset the way the the the, the, the balance part is with each particular setting, and how are they going to get from point A to point B? So, I will definitely say that putting them in different locations was probably the smartest move that the showrunners could do this was a great decision on their part i i strongly applaud them for doing that um and there is rich dramatic content to be mined from the 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 different locations and the characters trying to get uh to each of, of the locations so this definitely shows to me that there is hope for the show um i just i i just really get worried about some of the choices that the characters make um, okay, so episode three. Let's talk about the church, and we're almost done with this episode So, of the podcast. So Mrs. Raven spots a man with a butterfly tattoo on his back. Now, because we have seen this in the trailers, um, I, I expect that tattoo to come alive horribly. And she later sits um, with, with this guy to discuss the Black Spring of the 1800s and how she believes that this is what's occurring now. So that's really interesting to me, and that's a an aspect that I would like to see explored more. And if the, the arrowhead exploited something that had occurred in nature rather than punching um, a hole between uh, dimensions as it's been um, you know, hinted at before um, in the past. But the fact that something like this has happened before on a much smaller level, I'm very, very interested in. And I like that, that that's a dangling mystery in the show. So... Um, I questioned before, like, what role is Mrs. Raven going to play? And it's starting to become clear now. Because she believes in natural endings, she also believes that she sees her deceased husband outside. She believes that her husband is coming back to her through unnatural means. And it's not hard to imagine her believing that the mist is something to be worshipped. So, in the last, in the last, in episode two, I wondered if the mist was going to manipulate her the way that it was manipulating Mia. The answer is yes, it's clearly working. Speaking of Mia, um, she's locked up in the basement because of a power play between Kevin and Connor, and the romance between Mia and Brian, um, who is her only confidant, continues to grow. Kevin decides he's going to get them out of the church, but not before Connor can accuse Adrian of lying about Alex's rape. But before he can get them out, Kevin is goaded by Connor into shoving him, which forces the sheriff to lock him up in the basement as well. And then Mrs. Raven decides that she's going to leave, but is stopped outside in the midst by the man with the butterfly tattoo. A bug flies in his ear, and then crazy stuff happens because the showrunner wants crazy stuff to happen. Now, here's what made the original novella and the movie effective. It was a simple premise. Mist comes, and there are monsters in the mist. If you go out into the mist, the monsters eat you. It's really that simple by adding this additional weirdness it's clouding the simplicity of the concept it's getting lost in the mist why does a bug in the ear cause immediate wings to burst from the back of the man and why do other smaller bugs from his mouth if he didn't have the butterfly tattoo would that have happened is it coincidence should i care to me the deaths seem manufactured backwards as if they'd been watching hannibal and said hey let's have a tragically beautiful monstrous death that looks like a painting 
um, and then worked in reverse to get that particular shot. It just doesn't seem organic. So at the mall, they cut down the suicides and discover the dog tags around their necks. And this, for some reason, causes Gus to search the survivors for dog tags of their own. Again, this is exactly what I had issues with in, in episode two. This, it's an absurd leap of logic. As soon as he states this, one of the other undercover soldiers, in the most conspicuous fashion, um, tries to leave and is immediately accosted by Gus and security. There is no logical explanation for why this occurs. Yes, we know that the Project Arrowhead has something to do with it, but the manner in which our characters begin to find out are clumsy, to say the least. We also begin meeting other characters, including two employees at a GameStop-like store, and Jesus Christ. They are goofy, mean-spirited, uh, sophomore goons who literally sit in front of a dead television screen and pretend to play video games. This seems like what a conservative 80s parent thought of kids who played video games were like. It's an outdated, one-note, ridiculous characterization. And I am not saying that the story doesn't benefit from boneheads. There are going to be boneheads in any situation, and the original story had boneheads to be sure. But at least you understood the rationale behind the bad decisions from first the novella and then the adaptation by Frank Darabont. The decisions were shaped by the below-the-surface resentment of the main, you know, that they had towards the main character. Whereas here, we just have two morons acting like morons because the script needed morons who borderline on sociopathy. They're gonna hang the dead bodies in front of the mall windows to see what comes out in the mist? Not to size up the thread or collect information, but just for shits and giggles. So, I don't know, like, again, this just shows this, this one note, very generic, aspect of the characterization on the show and then speaking of just bad decisions for bad decisions sake when eve and alex break off from the main group in order to keep her safe from jay eve thinks that it's best to then split up again and then wander the empty mall so unsurprisingly jay sneaks up on the solitary alex what transpires is the continuation of the growing question of what happened that night now, this piggybacks off a previous scene in the church in which Adrian was accused of lying. So, Jay insists that all he did that night was carry her upstairs, remove her sneakers, and put a blanket over her. Now, here's the deal, guys. Without a deft hand to guide the story, we could be heading into dangerous societal territory here. I, I mentioned the ripped-from-the-headline sensationalism of the plots, and the latest development of this particular plot is that the, they, they have the gay kid lying and the victim is to blame for perpetuating a lie. This, like I said, could really blow up in the showrunner's faces. Now, I completely acknowledge that this is only the third episode of a 10-episode story, so who knows what's going to happen. But if it turns out that this is the case and Adrian is lying and um, Alex was wrong, okay, um, this is a really, really bad look for the show. One thing to note at the moment, though, is that Jay swears he didn't do anything, he swears he wouldn't hurt her, and he is very insistent that he hold her hand to prove that, in his words, nothing will happen. However, she does not offer her hand, um, and he touches her without consent. Okay? 
if it does turn out that he had raped her, then this is an effective character beat tipping us off. Now, later, after the group discovers what the gamers have done, they decide to start coming up with rules to keep the group safe. Eve doesn't like the sound of where this is going and decides to leave. Random members of the group decide to go with her, and this leads to a face-off between Eve with a gun pointed at Jay. Um, and then they, they, they're able to go their separate ways. Um, and that's it. And that's episode three of The Mist. So guys, now that we are into almost an hour and a half of recording, my final thoughts on The Mist are this. There is a lot of potential in this show. I still believe that there is a place for an ongoing mist story with supernatural mist, the likes of which that we are getting here. I do think that there is some uh, problematic storytelling that could be happening with the societal issues that they've decided to play with on this show. Um, because in our world, uh, you know, uh, we, we do have you know still uh, a lot of bullying and a lot of harassment towards gay kids we still have um blame the victim um so if we have adrian who is who at this where we leave off he could be lying about all of this if it turns out that he's lying um the showrunners might think that they're just playing with one character on the show and just because he's gay it doesn't speak to like all gay people and I, I completely understand that but there are ripple effects um, and if he is lying that is not going to help society similarly if uh, Alex um, kicked up all of this dirt and accused Jay of doing this to her and it turns out that she's wrong um, again this is just one character in the show but from a larger societal aspect, um, it is reinforcing the worst aspects of our society in which we, um, you know, don't hold people accountable. Um, so I don't know how this is going to play out. No one knows how it's going to play out. Um, but I just, I worry that they might have bitten off more than they can chew. I think that these are conversations that we need to have. I really, really do. Um, and I think that there is definitely a place for them in in uh, entertainment, in horror entertainment. I, I think that it's important that the more we see it, the more we talk about it, and through talking about it, hopefully we'll come a greater understanding. I hope so. But I just, at times with what I've seen in this show, I question whether or not the showrunner and, and, and the writers of the show just have what it takes to really have that conversation, I guess. Um, so I don't know. I've reviewed episodes 1 through 3. I doubt I'm going to be reviewing episodes 4 through 10. Um, I might. I don't know. I might check back sporadically. I might kind of give you updates in the news sections of upcoming episodes. But for the most part, um, it did not hook me enough. And um, there just wasn't enough meat uh, to this show for, for me to, to really continue with it right now. That could change. But for right now, it didn't leave me really wanting more. All right, guys, so thank you for uh, sticking around uh, for this past uh, 90 minutes or so. And next week, I believe I'll be heading back and reviewing the stories of Night Shift that I did not review the first time around. So 
um, dust off your collection of night shifts, um, you know, review the stories within, and I will probably re-release my um, original night shift um, episode as well, um, which is crazy to me because that was one of the earliest Stephen King cast episodes that I did. And at the time, it was announced that Matthew McConaughey was circling the role of Randall Flagg in Josh Boone's adaptation of The Stand, which of course fell apart. But just to think that he, he just transitioned from possibly playing Randall Flagg to playing Randall Flagg just with another name in the Dark Tower, that, that's it's just fun, you know? Life is, life is, life is fun. Okay, guys, uh, thank you for sticking around and uh, join me next week. And if you have not done so, head on over to iTunes um, for a review because, honestly, a review will really help me out on iTunes. Like, it will really help me out, guys. So um, if you have a few minutes on your hands, uh, you know, do me a favor and help me out. Um, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Don't forget to check out, uh, you know, One for the Road and uh, get your T-shirts at Katet19 and um, have a fantastic week and may you have long days and pleasant nights and I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen Kingcast.